Would you open your Bibles, please, to uh, Ezekiel chapter 47. Ezekiel 47, and while you do that, I'm going to show you a picture of a body of water. This is a picture of the Dead Sea that is... um, The Dead Sea is in the southeast side of Israel. The perspective of the image is you're looking from Israel to the east, so the mountains on the east side are in Jordan. And it's called the Dead Sea for a reason. The Dead it is uh, it's so salty that there's no very little life, no fish, none of, nothing that you and I would normally think of. The life in the sea is in the Dead Sea. It's extremely salty. In fact, it's so it's ten times saltier than the Mediterranean Sea. It's so salty that you could go, you could swim in the Dead Sea, which I did this past spring, and you could be. You could be in 100 feet of water. In fact, it's an extremely deep, it's a small body of water, but it's almost 1,000 feet deep at its deepest point. It's extremely deep. You could have 800 feet of water under you, and you would still be floating up to your chest. That's so buoyant. You're so buoyant. Around the Dead Sea is desert. So the lack of rain that makes the environment arid is... Um, exacerbated by the saltiness of the sea itself so that um, it looks exceedingly barren when you're there. Another contributing factor to the Dead Sea is that it's a very, very low, it is the lowest point on the planet if you're on land. So to stand on the shore of the Dead Sea puts you about 1,400 feet below sea level. And so when you add those factors up, and then here's another one, uh, there's almost no fresh water that ever makes it, that ever feeds into. Despite the fact that it's the lowest point on earth, almost no fresh water ever makes it there. The most significant river that feeds into the Dead Sea is the Jordan River. Here's a picture, a satellite image. Um, At the top you see the Sea of Galilee. That's sort of the headwaters of the Jordan. And you, maybe your eyes can make out, maybe they can't. Take my word for it. Um, there's a blue line that sort of connects the Sea of Galilee to the Dead Sea. By the time the Jordan River gets down to the Dead Sea, it's almost entirely dissipated. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's been spent out. It's been taken from. So that it really contributes very, very little to the Dead Sea. And in fact, at present, the Dead Sea is shrinking every day. It's getting smaller. There's nothing alive in the Dead Sea. That's that's the point I guess I'm trying to make. It's a pretty harsh environment. We're going to see a vision here a facet of the vision in Ezekiel that's going to end at the Dead Sea. And in this vision, we've been now, this is our third week, we've been dealing with the vision of the temple of God in the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel 40 to 48, there's been this rejuvenated vision of the temple of God. And I've said before, but I'll say again, I don't really see this vision as 
um, a blueprint for a temple that God wants Ezekiel to make or that in the mind of God, this is what they should be doing. You might think of it this way, that this vision of the temple is a corrective image to repair and reestablish among the Jewish people what right worship really ought to look like. So I believe the vision is, is largely symbolic, having sort of a corrective role in, in the lives of those who kind of dwell and chew on it. And today, uh, we're going we're gonna to maybe think about and meditate on what happens when God has his way. So if, if things were as they should be, what could we expect to see? And this is what uh, Ezekiel says. I'm going to read in 47. I'm just going to go a couple verses at a time, at least initially. Ezekiel says, and he's speaking, by the way, about that he has this angelic envoy, this man-angel with a measuring rod in his hand who's been taking him around and showing him dimensions. Okay, this man is still in the picture. Chapter 47, Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. Then he brought me out by the way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate that faces towards the east. And behold, the water was trickling out on the south side. A lot of easts and souths there. Let me show you. I'm going to show you a picture of the, te- of the temple, at least the vision. This is a vision or a depiction of the vision that Ezekiel's had. The tall building towards the top of the screen with the purple roof, can you see that? That's the artist's interpretation of the temple. Okay? So you think the top of the picture is west, to your right is north. I'm looking at opposite, but that, that feels right, yeah? So if you think the temple is towards the west side of the the square, and that is a square, it just looks like a rectangle because of perspective. Those white rectangles are the artist's rendering of the gates. So you notice there's a gate to the north, a gate to the east, and a gate to the south on the outer wall. And then towards the inner by the temple, you see the same gates mirrored again. You see that? That's, this is like the temple as Ezekiel envisioned it. Well, here's what happened. Is he, the, the, the guide takes him and makes him stand right near on the threshold of the temple and he sees a river, water coming up from underneath the steps and flowing out. And here's, this is my artist's rendering. There you go. It's this little creek. And, and it, is, it starts as a trickle. In fact, the Hebrew... You know, we have onomatopoeias, like if you're going to pour water, milk out of a jug, you go glup, 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 glup. Well, the Hebrew is actually an onomatopoeia for the sound, gurgling sound. That's how small the creek starts. I don't know the Hebrew word, but it's like glup, glup, glup. It's the Hebrew for that. It's how it starts. It's gurgling out from underneath the steps. And it takes this little jog to the south. 
just to get around the altar and the gates. That's how you should understand it. Is it's kind of coming out of the temple, but it's not going to plow through the altar and it's not going to plow through the gates. It kind of jaunts to the south and then extends out. Okay? That's what is happening here in these first two verses. Now watch what happens in verse 3. Going eastward with a measuring line in his hand, the man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water and it was waist deep. Again, he measured a thousand and it was a river that I could not pass through for the river had risen. It was deep enough to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. So I want you to think about this. In this vision, this river is doing something that rivers do not do. It's, it's doing something impossible, which is as it goes, it's swelling in strength. Now, sometimes we think of this way with rivers because they're being fed by other rivulets. This is a solitary river. It's not being fed by other waters. The headwaters of this river are a gluggling, churning little trickle coming out from underneath the stairs. But the farther you go, the bigger it is. It's trending towards immeasurability. That's what, that's what Ezekiel is astounded at, is the farther he goes, the deeper it gets ankle, knee, waist, swimming. Rivers don't do that. The Jordan River dissipates into the Dead Sea. Because by the time you get to the end of the Jordan River, it's but a gluggling little trickle. This starts that way and gets mighty. Let's see what it does. Verse 6. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back to the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. That sea is the Dead Sea. That's what he's speaking about. This water flows down into the Dead Sea. When the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that, wa that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to in Aglaim, it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They are to be left for salt. On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food 
and their leaves for healing. You hear the picture? When things are as God would have them to be, life comes out of the temple in ever-increasing measure. It doesn't run out. It doesn't dissipate. It doesn't dry up. You don't find some place on the earth where the life-giving water of God is, can't reach. It's not of a limited sort of quantity. It comes out of God and it superabounds. Paul writes in Romans where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Grace superabounded. This is that kind of river of life. This river of life comes out and it gives life to everything. It meets dead things and rejuvenates them. That's what he's saying here. This river goes to the deadest place that Ezekiel knows and it gives life. Not just a little bit of life. The Dead Sea becomes alive. It says it becomes teeming, swarming with very many kinds of fish so that men all around from city to city, he's picking two cities on sort of opposite sides of the sea, will cast their nets and draw in fish. This living water nurtures the ground in such a way that trees, so the water of life gives birth to trees of life that raise up that feed year in and year out through month after month. This is in a desert, by the way. Month after month, they are irrigated by the water of life and they feed us and heal us. This is what happens when God has his way. This is what happens in us when God has his way with us, right? God seeks out, and I'm saying this to you in case you think, you know, maybe you're here this morning and you think, God has saved me, but there's things about me that are just remain dead or off limits. And I'm here to say the water of God does not dry up. It flows and it seeks out dead things to give them life. So it's what happens to you when God has his way with you. And it's what happens to this world when God has his way with us. We're the temple, right? We are the things of God. Just think of how the story of God started. One man dying on a cross in abject failure is how this stream started, right? This tiny failed witness gives birth, right? Turns out it's not death. It's life. Pretty soon, this resurrected man is walking on a street to Emmaus, and what was one now becomes two, right? The, the witness of Christ is now owned by two, and on and on, so that you have people like Stephen and Philip and Paul and Peter, witnesses in such a degree that by the end of Acts, there are people claiming that this religion of Jesus has turned the world upside down. Because it doesn't dry up. We are part of this river. Jesus said to his apostles, it's good that I go away and that you receive the Holy Spirit for much more can be done through you than through me. Greater things through you than through me. Really, we receive the Holy Spirit and we're like a river that swells. 
This is what Jesus says in John 7. It says, on the last day of the feast, I think this passage is up there. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Okay, there's the water of life. Look at 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. We receive the water of life and we give it. And we give it in ever increasing measure. So the people far away from God, near dead water, near deserts, far away from hope, hear about Christ through our witness. I'm going to pray, if you'll bow your heads, that as we, just, as we enter into and just sit in this service beneath this word, that the Lord would remind you in faith that he's doing the work of bringing life to dead things. And Lord, uh, I'll start that prayer just individually, Lord. I lift up people here this morning who, whose faith has grown stale. Maybe people who feel that you've said, well, that's good enough. I'll take out, I'm done working here. I'll take what I have. Lord, I pray that they would, they would know that the fruit of God bears in and out of season, month after month. That the water flows in ever-increasing measure. And Lord, as a people, I pray that we would see that this is what you do when you have your way with us. This is what you're trying to do with us. This is as we living stones being built together as a holy temple for our God to offer living sacrifices. Lord, you, may you assemble us. May, you, may we be moldable and obedient and straight and as you would have us be, Lord, so that beneath the threshold can come what will ultimately gush and flood as life. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read one more verse from Ezekiel. <clears throat> but I don't, I guess if you just trust me, you can wait for me in Revelation. So that's where we'll do most of our reading from. So if you want to turn to the last page of your Bible and just hang out there. What I want to As we close out these thoughts on the temple, I want to respond to something that may, maybe, I think it might have been in some of you, which is the Old Testament feeling of this vision of Ezekiel. Like, we don't have a temple now. We don't have temple walls. We don't have holy cities. I mean, those things are... They belong to a different era because of Christ. And the apostles, and the, they, could, they could help us out, right? They could say, well, we don't have a temple, but you are the temple. We don't have a priesthood, but you are a nation of royal priests. They, there's times where, you know, the apostles have said, Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our sacrifice. Jesus is our way into the most holy place. All of those things have been said. 
because the vision as Ezekiel sees it without Christ is not complete. There's, if you understand me right, I'm not saying God's made a mistake here. It's unfulfilled. It's waiting. It's given to us for a purpose, uh, but it doesn't show us everything. It, it leaves behind a problem. And what I'd like to do is look at the problem as we see it in Ezekiel, what I will call a problem in Ezekiel, and then follow our, ourselves ahead to a vision given to us after Christ in Revelation and, and see how, how it's different. Here's, here's the problem in Ezekiel. It has to do with the religion given to Israel. And in the religion given to Israel, there's a high, high degree of awareness and emphasis on the fact that God has come to them. God tabernacles among them. He's their God. And they are to have no other. So the personal nature of God is at the heart of Old Testament Scripture. But right next to the personal, relational nature of God, where he belongs to the people and he dwells among the people, right next to that, in the heart of Old Testament Scripture, is the dual awareness of distance between God and man. So God is among them. God is for them. God will even claim to be with them. But at the very same time, our verse is saying, come no closer, don't cross this line. There's distance. There's distance put in to the closeness. I'll give you an example. The last verse I want to read in Ezekiel is the last verse of Ezekiel. And he's going to be describing the holy city of God. And we'll talk about this in a second. It's a new Jerusalem. And this Jerusalem has all of the high, elegant, spiritual dimensions that all the rest of the vision has had. So it's 4,500 cubits by 4,500 cubits square. It has 12 gates, one for each tribe, three on each side. It's elegant and it's beautiful. And it has a name. And the name is, this is the very last verse, it says, the circumference of the city shall be 1,800 cubits, and the name of the city from that time on shall be, the Lord is there. That's how the book of Ezekiel ends. Yahweh is there. That's the name of his city. Which again, there's the closeness of God. But let me show you. Let me show you the setting of this. This is an image that I used last week, so I'm going to call your attention to it. My emphasis last week was on the princes, but... I want to call your attention to the blue shapes. God, in the, in the vision, set aside for himself a holy tract or district of land. And it's square. It's 25,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits. And the first portion of that holy district, a portion of it was reserved for the priests. And that's the top portion in the image there. And in that area for the priest, those are the ones who administer the sacrifices before the Lord. 
In that section is the temple and all of its associated buildings and walls. So that image you saw earlier in the service of the temple, that is that little black square in this precinct of priests. And then you might say to the south of that would be the district for the Levites. And the Levites were a tribe devoted to the Lord to sort of manage the, the work of the temple and its associated buildings. So they're sort of one step down from priests and their lives are devoted to caring for the things of the temple. And they have a significant tract of land. And then at the very far end, you have this last tract of land, 5,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits for the house of Israel. And its purpose, presumably, is that when all the tribes would come back to visit pilgrimage to God on holy days, they would have a place to stay. Remember that city, the Lord is there? This is where it sits. Let me show you. This is where, there it is. It sits there. Which is like six miles away from the temple. Now, I point this out because it's so emblematic of the problem in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills, which is God, is a, God has come for us, but there's distance. There's insurmountable distance. That's the test, the Torah, the law of Moses, the prophets. You cannot read a book in the Old Testament and, and not experience the fact that God wants us to be close to us has come to save us, cares about us, and yet there is this insurpassable distance where God says, I've come close and you come no closer. God alone is holy, God alone is righteous, God alone is pure. And though we bear his likeness, we are not the same. We don't enjoy the sameness of God. We're not holy and we're flawed and we're prone to error and sin. And that builds distance. And you can see it here. This is, this is geographical. There's geographic distance between the city, which is the Lord is there, and actually where the Lord is in the temple. I want to be with my people, but we're on opposite sides of the Holy Land, the Holy District here. No matter what person you were in Israel, you'd feel that. The princes, thus far, you, you can come this close and not any closer. A normal person, you can come this close and not any closer. If you're a Levite, you can go closer, but you can't go that close. Even if you're a priest administering before the Lord, you can take the offering all the way in, but don't go into the most holy place. Every single person, everybody serving in the house of Israel had some defined notion of what is too close and not to cross it. Because... We enjoy God's likeness, but we don't enjoy God's sameness. And that distance has always, in the Old Testament, been accounted for with sacrifice. God wants to be with us, so there needs to be the shedding of blood and the sacrifice to atone for sin. God wants to draw close. Something needs to be sacrificed to atone for sin. Sin needs to be brought to the forefront and dealt with, and then God can draw close. That's the problem of the Old Testament. That's 
what's hanging in the Old Testament when Jesus comes. When Jesus comes, he is, he is the man that pulls God and mankind together. We are perfectly united with the Lord. So much so that he would say, you have the spirit of God in you now. So much so that he would say, you're now a son or daughter of the most high God. So much so that he would refer to the relationship between God, Jesus, and mankind as one of husband and wife, where there is not supposed to be any distance, where the two have actually become one. That is now the image that he's taken. And it's a problem in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is waiting, waiting for the answer. But Revelation isn't. Let's look at Revelation. I'm going to read a section of Revelation, Revelation 21. As I read it, I encourage you, particularly those of you who've been around all these three weeks, to hear the the vision of Ezekiel in it, okay? In Ezekiel, God whisks Ezekiel away to a very high mountain where he sees something like a city. He's given an angelic tour guide with a measuring rod who measures a city out and turns out there's this temple in the city and then everything that we've talked about since. Just hold on to that as we work through this this vision. And, and what I would say about these visions, I think the best meaning of these visions is not for you to know exactly how long a wall is going to be one day. It's to give you a holy impression of what God intends to do. You should walk away feeling like, well, I don't, I don't remember all the details, but I'll tell you what God is, I'll tell you what, the impression, feel it. This is for here, to feel it in your chest. Okay, what God intends for us. Chapter 21. This is the Apostle John writing, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. You hear that? Prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. Now listen to how, how the language starts to sound. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Do you hear the difference? Do you hear the distance closed? He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. All the things that kept distance are gone. And God is with us. I imagine, I, I imagine the thought of the Lord actually wiping the tear from my eye. That's how close he'll be. You feel it. I'm going to skip to verse 9. This is where this angelic tour guide is. Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the, last, of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. That's us he's talking about. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. You hear Ezekiel? 
and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed, just like Ezekiel. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. On the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. I'm going to keep reading. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square, and its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 1,200 stadia. To give you an impression, the temple grounds were 500 cubits. That's like three football fields square. And the Jerusalem in Ezekiel was 4,500 cubits square, which is like three miles. Less than that, a mile. This is 12,000 stadia, which is about 1,400 miles. The city he's seeing is greater than 1,000 miles on side square. Verse 17, he also measured the wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second... Yeah, I'm reading this to you. I'm stopped. I'm reading this to you. Somebody said to me this week, and I felt it. He said, it feels gaudy. The city feels gaudy. Like, I, I need to say, like, like, I'm from New Jersey. It's all gaudy. And I feel that. As though, is God like tempting us to long for his city so that we can walk on streets of gold? And I need to remind you, you're the bride. You're the city. God is describing what he will have done with you. This is why it's worth reading, okay? You tarnished pebble, you rocky stone. Listen to what, how God will have finished you off Here. The foundations of the wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. This is you. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. That's you. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty in the land. Do you see that? No more distance. No more need for the Lord to be housed up in a room that I can't go to. No more need to have a priest and a Levite and a gate and a wall just to bring something to the Lord to mend the distance between us because there's no more crying and there's no more pain and there's no more distance anymore. The Lord God himself is with his bride in his city, pure light and no distance. That's what we have. That's what's waiting. And Ezekiel's waiting for this. 
And this is what we have to look forward to. I'll close with 22, chapter 22. Just let me read a few verses. We'll close the way we started. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. Here it is again. Bright as crystal. Flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is what he's doing with us. This is what Christ has done for us so that God can bring this union. This is what he wants for you. If you feel like there's distance between you and God because of sin, I'm here to say it does not need to be there. And you don't have to work away your sin. You don't have to do some sort of Herculean task, some great special kind of atonement. Jesus Christ has bridged the gap. He's closed the distance. He wants a union. So why would you let that distance remain? Let me pray, Lord. May it be so among the people of God. May we rise and grow and mature and sanctify to be such a people that nothing came between you and us. Lord, we remind ourselves in prayer now there's not a place in our soul that you do not want to bring life. And there is not an issue or problem that's between you and us that you do not want to deal with. It's your will and your aim to be in perfect union with your children. We thank you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.